Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, and go ahead and flip all the way to the end, to chapter 28. As we are continuing our series that we began a couple of weeks ago when we began to talk about Christ's church, the dearest place on earth. And isn't it? Look around you. This is the dearest place on earth, the body of believers to which Christ is the head. I wake up, as I told you last week, every Sunday morning excited about seeing each and every one of you. Uh, to receive those handshakes, those hugs, to have people just simply say this, I love you, or I'm praying for you this week. What a blessing it is to know that we are a part of such a wonderful, wonderful group of blood-bought believers in Christ. We are continuing to talk about the dearest place on earth. As we began, we talked about in the last few lessons the basic attributes of the church. What should the true church look like? But this week we're going to switch gears a little bit and, and leave the attributes of the church and look at the biblical assignment of the church. We're leaving the basic attributes, the characteristics that we all ought to possess as individuals that make up the whole, and the whole ought to possess those characteristics. We've looked at that in depth the last couple of weeks. But today we're going to look at the biblical assignment of Christ's church. What are we here to do? Many people are confused about this. Why, why do we exist? Do we exist because we just want to be a part of the club? Or do we exist because we got nothing better to do, nothing else to do? Do we exist because people are just bored and want to get together? There's so much more to it than that. We have an assignment. And Jesus makes that assignment very clear in the two verses that we're going to look at today. But before we get to that assignment, what I want to tell you first is this, and I want you to write this down because so many people in our day are confused about this. So many so-called churches are confused about this. I want us to look at, before we move into the biblical assignment of Christ's church, what he commanded us and told us we are to do while we are left here on this earth. Right? Have you ever wondered, why are we left here? We're left here for a purpose. Because if we didn't have a purpose, the moment that you were saved, he would have just gone ahead and taken you home. But you're left here with a purpose. And I want to tell you what that purpose is not as the church. Write this down. The church's assignment is not to fix all of the social problems or social injustices in this fallen world. This world is tainted by sin. In fact, Romans chapter 8 says the very earth, the world, is groaning for redemption. When Adam fell, the whole world fell into chaos. And our job as the church is not to fix the chaos of this world, all of the social injustices and all of the things that so many people spend all of their time doing in the name of the church. That's not the church's job. One day Jesus Christ will return and he will make sure that everyone receives justice. And everything is going to be restored back to the Eden-type state that it was in before the fall of man. But until then, the earth is going to become progressively worse. 
There's nothing you can do about it. This earth has a death sentence upon it because when Adam fell to sin, death entered in upon all men and upon this earth. There's nothing you can do to rewind that or fix it. Many people in the so-called church spend their whole lives trying to fix social injustices. It's not our job as the church. It's not our assignment. Jesus is going to make our assignment very clear and concise and simple in just a moment. But secondly, it's not to make pagan sinners feel accepted. Many people think that the duty of the church, the assignment of the church, is to make pagans feel accepted, to, to embrace all sorts of, of immorality and idolatry and paganism, and just to act as if it's okay. It's not okay. In fact, the church is called to abstain and to avoid even the very appearance of evil. How could the church ever fall into the trap of thinking that their job was to make every pagan, idolatrous sinner accepted. It's not our job. It's not our duty. When a person comes in, it's not our job to make them feel comfortable on their way to hell. It is our job to tell them the truth, that they are on their way to hell. Yes, and that is a fact. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are all condemned already. Now, unless God graciously intervenes and saves their wretched soul, they will be judged for all eternity. I know people get upset when you talk that kind of biblical talk these days. But our assignment is not to make people feel comfortable on their way to hell and accept it. Because, you know, in this world, the church can make those people feel accepted all that they want. But they're never going to be accepted into God's eternal kingdom apart from Jesus Christ. It's high time we let them know that. So it's not to make the pagan sinner feel accepted. It's not to fix social problems or injustices in this fallen world. You know what else is not the assignment of the church that we're seeing so often in so-called church circles today in the culture that we live in? And that is to blend in with the culture in a non-offensive way, right? Change the church into a rock concert so that the lost world won't be offended, Right? cut all the lights, get a smoke machine, make it look like a rock concert, and everybody's coming, and they will. That's not the assignment of the church. Make people feel like they're at a heavy metal concert. Make people feel like they're at something worldly just so that they'll stick around a little while. That's not our assignment. Not only that, our assignment is not to change the world into being a better place. As I've already said, the world and the state that which she is in right now will never be a better place. Not until Christ returns. He destroys the earth as we know it by fire. And he recreates it back to what he intended for it to be. Also, the church and her assignment is not to be inclusive. Not to be inclusive. Just the other day, my wife was in a conversation with a lady at the grocery store who was asking about church. She had a Christian t-shirt on. And the lady asked about church. And the lady let her know, well, I go to this church because they include everyone. Oh, we know what that means in today's society, don't we? They include everyone. That means they're an all-inclusive church. And the lady began to tell her they accept the LGBTQ plus community. As if my wife was going to somehow be impressed with that type of immorality. But she let her know real quickly that we are part of this church because they're inclusive, right? Because 
the church in today's messed up church culture thinks that we have to be inclusive. We have to include everyone in everything, right? They had that conversation shortly before her same-sex partner showed up to reveal why she was thankful that she had a church that was all-inclusive. Can I insert this at the risk of offending everyone? The church is exclusive, not inclusive. It is only for those who are in Christ, who have been saved, ushered out of darkness. I don't care what lifestyle of darkness it was. You have come out of that lifestyle of darkness. You have been ushered into marvelous light, and that light is Christ. It's exclusive. The church is exclusive to the believers. If you're here today and you dub yourself, please don't, a seeker, you have no place in his church. You're not seeking anything. In fact, the Bible is very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after him. Stop being deceived and deceiving yourself. You're not seeking God. You're seeking something else. Because when a person is truly born again and saved, it is God who seeks them out of their sin. No one seeks him. We seek self-indulgence. We seek self-fulfillment. We seek pleasure for our flesh and sin. So our duty is not to be inclusive as our assignment. Nowhere does Jesus say, Go ye therefore and be all inclusive. But no, it is an exclusive place. It is the place of the elect, those who are purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I don't say that to be arrogant. I say that to be biblically true. This is an assembly of blood-bought, spirit-filled Christ followers. And no one else should feel at home here but blood-bought, spirit-filled Christ followers. And so the assignment of the church is not to make everyone feel included. In fact, if you go back to the New Testament church, at times they were excluding people for open immorality. They were removing them from fellowship. They were disciplining them because of their waywardness. It would say things like mark them and have nothing to do with them because of their immorality. That's the New Testament church. The problem is in America, we don't even know what a New Testament church really is supposed to look like. I'll give you a hint. Go back to the New Testament and read it. Stop throwing your opinions and your ideas out there and go look at what the Scripture says the church really is. And so when we look at the assignment of the church, the biblical assignment, we must go back to when it was given. And we go back to Matthew chapter 28, what we know as the Great Commission, where Jesus is about to ascend into heaven after he was here on this earth where he died, he was buried, he rose again, he spent some days on the earth teaching his disciples all the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to him, teaching them things that even John said, if I wrote them all down, there wouldn't wouldn't be enough uh, room in the world to hold all the books. But now Jesus is about to ascend into heaven And he gives them their assignment. Here's what I am leaving you here to do. Look at this, if you would, with me in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We will look at two verses today. And in these two verses, let me just go ahead and tell you this. There is a lot there. Unfortunately, many times we skip over it and miss the nuggets of truth that are here. We will not do that today. Verse 19, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That therefore is because he has told them, that I'm giving you authority to go do this. Therefore, go and do it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Oh, there's so much there that we have to jump in quickly and talk about this. But before we do, I want you to see something here that that if you would pay close attention to this, this will change these two verses to where you don't just read over them and think that there's not a lot there. You read them and say, this is the last request and the assignment given to the church by Christ himself. And in this text, when he says, make disciples, in those two verses, that is the only direct command in this whole statement known as the Great Commission. It is in the imperative mood in the Greek language. It says, make disciples. It's not optional. It is a command. Now, what Jesus does with the rest of these surrounding words and the rest of this text, he uses present participles such as go, baptize, trust, teach. He uses those present participles to show these disciples just how they are to go and make disciples. He gives them the resources to accomplish the assignment that he's given them right there in this text. And that's what we're going to look at today. He doesn't just say, make converts. Most of the time that I've spent in a certain denomination, all they would do when you got to the Great Commission was talk about making converts. Then they'd have a bunch of little infant Christians running around, tossed to and fro from every wind of doctrine, some of them standing in pulpits delivering pep talks each week. That's not the assignment of the church. The assignment of the church is not go make converts to Christ. Though that's a part of it, and we're going to see that. The assignment of the church is make disciples. That is the command here. This is the imperative here. Make disciples. I want you to focus on that in this whole lesson today. There's one strict command here. Make disciples. And so if you knew this as a follower of Christ, because we know this, that if you love Him, you'll what? Obey Him. You ought to be asking the question immediately, what do I have to do to make disciples? So that I can be obedient to the command of the Lord to make disciples. What must I do? He includes it in this so graciously. And I'm thankful for the way Jesus laid this out for us. So that we don't settle for making converts. Focusing on only the go part. But that we make disciples in accordance with His will in obedience to His command. He's simply telling them, Make disciples. And here's how. And this is why this is so important. John MacArthur rightfully calls disciples of Christ believing learners and learning believers. Isn't that what we are? Believing learners and learning believers. That's what a disciple of Christ really is. We're believers who continue to learn. And we're learners who continue to believe. And so when we look at that basic definition of make disciples, we have to ask ourselves, are we making believing learners and learning believers? Because that is the biblical assignment of the church. It's to make disciples. And today what we're going to do is we're going to unfold exactly how we are to do that. And why is that important? Am I preaching this message because we are not a church who makes disciples? No, I'm preaching this message to say, thankfully, we are a church who makes disciples. 
But I'm also aware of this. A church who forgets what their assignment is will quickly run down the wrong path and end up not making disciples. Did you know that at a horrible and astounding rate, churches across our country in the last three years have began to padlock their doors, no longer making disciples. They have lost sight of what they are supposed to do, who they are and what Jesus has given them as their assignment. People ask all the time, why do you think Key Life Fellowship grows when other churches don't? Because we're making disciples. We're making disciples. We're not just making converts. We're making disciples. And you know what? When we make disciples, you know what disciples do? They make more disciples. And you know what happens to those disciples? They make more disciples. And so we see by design, because 2,000 years ago when Jesus gives this assignment, these men were obedient to this assignment. I stand here before you today saying we too must be obedient to this assignment. Why? Because if the Lord tarried 2,000 more years, and I hope that he doesn't, and it doesn't look like he could, but that's all up to him. But if he tarried 2,000 more years, I pray that we would make disciples, true disciples, who make true disciples, who make true disciples. I pray that you dads would become a disciple maker in your home, that you would disciple your wife, and you would disciple your children together, that you would teach them the truths of the Word of God, teach them the importance of what we're going to see today. Any organization that calls themselves a church that isn't making disciples is not a church at all. They're a social group. They're a country club. They're an organization. They're a gathering. But don't dare call them a church. Why? Because a church will be on assignment. And what is that assignment? It is to make disciples. Let's learn how this morning, as the master teacher, the Lord Jesus, teaches us and how we do this. He says this in verse 19 as we break this text down. He says, therefore, go and Make disciples. Therefore, go. Now, I want you to pay attention to this part because this is an important part of making disciples. There has to be a going. If you're going to make disciples, there must be a going. Go here is not, as I've already said, a direct command. It's a present participle. It is a given. Jesus isn't commanding them to go. He's communicating to them that I know that you're going to be going. How does he know that? Because he knows us. We go, 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 don't we? Some of you have a hard time sitting in a church service listening to me preach for 30 minutes or so. Because you want to go, right? I'll give you a sermonette if you want one, but it'll do neither one of us good. You want to go, you want to move, you want to do something, right? We understand that. He's making an emphasis here to the fact that they are going to be going. Right? When you get done here, you're going. Where are you going? Come on. You're going to lunch. I know where you're going. Right? You're the reason that when I get there an hour and a half later, everything's already out. <laughs> He's talking about the fact that we're going to be going. He's not giving a command here. He's giving a given. And as we are going, we have a responsibility. And what is that responsibility? That responsibility is the gospel. The gospel. Because you can't make disciples without the gospel. Isn't that square one? We have to share the gospel as we go. You're going to leave here in just a little while. You're going to go to lunch. 
You can go to lunch, and you can talk about how horrible the sermon was. And when I walk in, stop talking, I would probably agree with you, just let me in on the conversation. Or what you could do is this. You can understand that Jesus is teaching here, as you are going, you need to be proactive in your attitude in sharing the gospel. A proactive attitude in sharing the gospel. What is that? It's a willingness to at any place and any time share the gospel. That's what proactive means. It is a proactive attitude where you say, I'm going to do what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where he told him to preach the word in season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's not popular, all the time, be ready to share the gospel. So now life begins to look different. As you go from this place, as you have been reminded that you are what? Light, and you are going out into... Now you go out into the darkness shining the light of Jesus Christ because you were going anyways. And when you go to that particular place, that restaurant where you're going to eat, that home that you're going to eat with friends, let there be a willingness to share the gospel at all times, in season and out of season, when you think it will be accepted, when you think that it won't, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. We as Christians have to be active in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because by design, did you know it's by design? And I didn't design it. I didn't make it up. I just attempt to follow it. It is by God's design that we have been entrusted with the method and the means to make disciples. The first thing is to evangelize the lost as we go. And that comes with a willingness to at every turn, all times, share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he designed it this way. That we get to preach the gospel that we have received. Oh, if the gospel means something to you, if when you were saved you heard the gospel, and in the gospel you know that God used that to rescue you from judgment and wrath and hell, if you really understand that, how can you keep someone else from hearing that message? In fact, Romans chapter 10 tells us this is God's design for it as we go. He says in verse 13 of chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We love that verse. We leave it by itself all the time. Don't. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yes. Watch what he says next. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I know what you do now. You say, yeah, preacher, that's your job. No, that's your job. Go back and study Romans. He's writing to the entire church. And he's letting them know that as you are going, as the Lord told us you would be, make sure that you are diligent in preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the sinner. He goes on to say, how can they preach unless they are sent? He said, well, I'm not sent to preach. Every week you're sent to preach. Your pastor sends you out every week. Go be the light in darkness. And when they ask, what are you to do? When they ask and they inquire about the hope that you have, what do I tell you? Week after week after week, share with them the glorious gospel because Romans 1.16 says it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 
go preach that message. That without Jesus, there is no hope, and there's only hope in Jesus, and they must repent of their sin. And by faith, trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, they are then freed from the wrath and judgment of God, and they have been given eternal life. Oh, you have eternal life? What person who really, truly understands eternal life would withhold that from anyone else? Be they friend, be they enemy. Share with them the good news. Preach to them the gospel. It should be ingrained in our lives, a proactive attitude in sharing the good news, a lifestyle of looking for every opportunity to share that glorious message that we have been entrusted with. What a treasure. You know, Scripture says he's entrusted that treasure in jars of clay. We're nothing. But the message of the gospel that we carry around with us is everything. Share that with others. Be proactive in your attitude in sharing the gospel. It will also be marked not only by proactivity in your attitude, but also by a passionate appeal to those who are lost. You will be passionate about seeing sinners saved. In fact, you will seek them. As you're going, you go to that restaurant that we spoke of earlier, you sit down at your table, you ask the waitress, and I hope you do. I hope you don't treat them as slaves. I hope you treat them as souls. But as you ask that waitress, how's your day going? Pay attention to what she says. She begins to complain and she begins to tear up and tell you how horrible her life is right now. and Nothing seems to be going right. You know what she needs? She needs an ear at that moment in time to hear where she is so that you can then turn and share the gospel with her. Because what the world's going to do, the world's going to hear her. The world's going to say, hey, why don't you come over tonight and we'll have a party and we'll, we'll get some booze and we'll liquor it up and feel bad together. We have the glorious message of the gospel and what we can do in that situation when she says, my life's falling apart. You can actually kindly and gently speak to her about the fact that, you know what, you may feel like your life is falling apart, but the reason that you feel that is because your life is really no life at all. There is no life apart from Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the true life. And you began to share with the same individual about Jesus Christ and what he did for you at the cross and how he rescued you from your miserable state of being just a wicked sinner, scoundrel. Or for you females, a scoundrette. I think that's the female version of a scoundrel. But you share with her how there is hope beyond this life, beyond the agony that we face in this world, beyond just the day-to-day -day struggles. If you passionately share that with her, share the message of Christ. And in doing this, you mirror Christ in the apostles. Christ himself said in Luke chapter 19, verse 20, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm so thankful for the people in my life who sought that which was lost and poured in the gospel to me. Whether that was, was the preaching of the gospel from the pulpit or the preaching of the gospel from, from dinner tables or the preaching of the gospel when we were driving in vehicles, wherever it was, I'm thankful for those obedient disciple makers who as they were going, passionately appealed to this lost sinner calling me to faith and repentance in Christ and Christ alone. And so as we look at this, going is a part of making disciples. As you're going, be proactive in your attitude and sharing the gospel. Be passionate in your appeal to those who are lost. Approach every soul as if it is your dearest loved one who will perish and spend an eternity in hell. Because wouldn't you want that, someone to do that for your loved one who you love so much? Of course you would. And then let that approach be a practical approach. As we are going, 
There must be a proactive attitude in sharing the gospel, passionate appeal to those who are lost, but also a practical approach. Approach this thing practically. Don't complicate it. This is evangelism 101-easy. Pay attention to it. Be practical in your approach. It's just simple. Everywhere God sends me. How many of you believe in the providential hand of God? Raise your hand. You believe that you were here this morning, not by coincidence, not by accident. You were here this morning because God providentially made sure that you were here. How many of you believe that? If you don't believe that, I would encourage you to study the Scriptures. You will find out very quickly that nothing happens that He doesn't cause or allow. He is sovereign and in control of everything. But if that be the case, let's keep our end of it very practical and very simple. Everywhere I go, God sends me. And everywhere I find myself, I have a message and a mission. That message is the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that he atoned for sinners on the cross 2,000 years ago, that he stood in the place of wickedness, my wickedness, and he bore the wrath of God upon his back that belonged upon my back, and then what he did in that great exchange we know as grace, he then imputed his righteousness to me, He bore my sin, imputed his righteousness to me, and I am in right standing with God, and he took the punishment for my sin. And by trusting in Christ and Christ alone, I am completely washed of all of my defilement, all of my wickedness. I am granted a place at the table of God for all eternity, and I will live in his presence forever because of what Jesus Christ did for me at the cross. That's the message that we have. That's the message we should share. Everywhere we go, looking for the opportunity to share that message. And when you break down on the side of the road with a flat, and you're mad because you're going to be late to work, and how could God ever let this happen? And the AAA man shows up with his tools that you didn't have in your car, perhaps you didn't know how to change a flat. And instead of seeing it as this big inconvenience, maybe you should start seeing things if you were a disciple maker following the assignment of Christ saying that you believe in the providential hand and guidance of God? And do you believe in that in all situations? So when you have a flat on the side of the road, guess what? God providentially allowed you to have a flat for what? Joe, the mechanic who works for AAA, who pulled up. He gets out of his car. You know what? Joe's lost and he's on his way to hell. He can never believe, he can never hear the truth unless a preacher tell him. And there you are on the side of the road. Oh, if you are truly understanding Jesus' assignment here as you are going, practically share the gospel. Before Joe leaves that day, you're going to come to your senses. And you're going to realize that God left you on the side of the road stranded. Why? Because he loved Joe so much that he would even inconvenience you with a flat tire so that Joe could hear the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved right there on the side of the road. You say, well, Kirk, does that happen? Yes, you continue to share the gospel. I will make you this guarantee. That will happen. That's by God's design. How will they know lest a preacher tell them? Oh, we ought to be practical in that, looking for every opportunity to share the gospel, realizing that every moment of every day we are on a mission. And what is that mission? The mission is to make disciples. It starts with sharing the gospel with them. Look for those opportunities. They are all around you all the time. Be a part of Jesus' assignment, making disciples. As you were going, share the good news. 
Share the good news of Jesus Christ because we know the world has plenty of bad news. Share with them the good news that there's hope beyond this life. There's hope beyond this world. There's hope beyond the grave. There's hope in Christ and Christ alone. The second thing that we look at here in Jesus teaching us how to make disciples and assigning us that task, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's not some formula or serum that you use to baptize. There's many people who argue about it. Should we be baptized in Jesus' name? Should we be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Here's the thing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always in agreement. It doesn't matter what terms you use. You're baptized into Christ. You're baptized into the Father. You're baptized into the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into the Son. If you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you're baptized into the name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. They are one working together. They always have. They always will. So let's not get caught up in all of those silly discussions. What we realize is what Jesus is saying here. The emphasis here is baptizing them. Wait a second, Kirk. We, we always have approached baptism as if it's just some secondary option. Not if you believe what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is saying this. As you're going, make disciples. So as you're going, share the gospel. That's where it starts. Right? It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Then he goes into baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is their first act of obedience. You are actually pointing this new convert to obedience in Christ. Why? So that they don't abuse grace their whole Christian life. You were showing them, now that you are a Christian, here's what Christians do. You know what a Christian does first? He or she publicly professes Christ. And how do they do that? Baptism. Go back all the way to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit came upon those who were there. Many were saved, in fact, thousands. And it says this in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. All 3,000 who were added to their number were baptized. Why? That is their public profession of Christ. Now, in our time, no big deal. We're going to see some people in just a moment. They're going to publicly profess Christ, and they're going to walk out the door, and their life is seemingly going to be the same. I hope not internally. But in the culture that Jesus is addressing here, he knew this. When they publicly profess Christ, they're going to be disowned by their family members. They're going to be disowned by their friends. That the Roman persecution was coming. They were going to be tortured and even killed by the Romans for openly and publicly professing Christ. Now baptism just became a big deal, didn't it? Why is baptism such a big deal? Because it is an introduction of the saint into the visible church. The introduction of the saint into the visible church through public profession of Christ. We do this through baptism. I say this boldly, an unbaptized individual cannot be a member of a local visible church. Why? Because we have no idea if they're truly saved. You ever seen anyone get saved? No, you haven't. You've seen people come forward. You've never seen anyone saved. Why? Because it's a transaction that you can't see. In fact, John chapter 3, Jesus made this very clear. It's like the wind. When, when one is born of the Spirit, the wind comes in. You don't see the wind. You see what the wind does or what the wind causes. And the first thing that the wind ought to cause in a true disciple of Christ, it ought to cause them to publicly profess Christ in baptism. Why? Because that's what they're commanded to do. That first act of obedience through that public profession known as baptism. 
and is in that ordinance, that that person is saying, I'm no longer of the world. I'm of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. I have left the world, and I am now in the church. They're offering themselves to be held accountable, to be loved, to be encouraged, to be admonished, to be exhorted, to be reproved by the church. It is in baptism that we recognize that because that is the only way that we can see if a person was saved. They say to the world, as we ask them, and they will be asked in a moment, you renounce sin and Satan, and they say, yes, they've turned, they've repented. Who is Jesus Christ? He's my Lord and Savior. It is a visible recognition of an invisible thing. Your positional baptism is invisible. Water baptism is visible. And so we see not only is it an introduction of the saint into the visible church, it's an invisible reality expressed. Water baptism is expressing the reality of positional baptism that we have in Christ. We have been immersed in Christ, right? That word baptizo in the Greek, that's what it means, immersed. We have been immersed in Christ through his death, his burial, and resurrection. That is why when we baptize people, we don't sprinkle them. They've not been sprinkled into Christ positionally. They have been immersed into Christ. And so we immerse them as a symbol of that, recognizing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and that belief in that being applied to that person who is professing Christ publicly. It simply expresses this, that we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we've been raised to new life with Christ. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says this, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Our baptism is identifying with Christ. If we're going to follow Christ in the assignment of making disciples, we will encourage those who profess Christ to publicly profess him in baptism where that invisible reality is expressed in a visible way. Let me be very clear on this before we move on from this topic. We are not regenerated due to baptism. We are baptized due to regeneration. Because we have been regenerated, we now have a new hunger and a new thirst in us to be obedient to Christ. And the first thing that Christ commands is to be baptized. So, the ritual of baptism is not a work that saves you. That's very clear throughout all of the New Testament. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not in any work that we could ever do or that anyone could do for us. And so to reconcile the arguments that have taken place throughout the ages about this particular subject, it is because we have been saved that we follow the Lord in believers' baptism. We don't follow the Lord in baptism so that we can be saved. But I have a hard time believing that a true convert will not publicly profess Christ in baptism. Right? Wouldn't there be a spiritual problem there still existing if someone said, yes, I know Jesus died for me, I know that he was buried for me, I know that he rose again for me, but I don't want to let everyone else know that. we got a problem there, don't we? And here's the problem. The problem is the teachings of Christ. When we go back to the teachings of Christ, 
We find a problem with that. What did Jesus teach? He said, if you're ashamed of me on this earth, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. You can't rewrite that. You can't make that say anything else. That is exactly what Christ says. And when we enter into the baptismal pool and we are identifying with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are saying that we are different because of Christ, and we are not ashamed of that, and we are publicly professing that in obedience to what the Lord has commanded. He has saved us, and we are identifying with Christ. It's invisible reality expressed in a visible way. It's also an identifying mark distinguishing the believer. An identifying mark distinguishing the believer from what? Well, from many things. Just as circumcision was an identifying mark under the old covenant to Israel, right? Remember Abram? He was commanded, circumcised his children. The generations followed after with that. Why? It was to set them apart, to distinguish them from the rest of the pagan world. And just as that sign of circumcision was an outward expression of a God-given covenant, baptism is the same thing. It is that outward expression of an invisible God-given covenant through the work of Jesus Christ. Baptism distinguishes you. Please know that if you're a so-called believer here today and you haven't been distinguished through a public profession, through baptism, you need to be distinguished. You can't figure out why the world doesn't think there's any difference between you and them. You've not been distinguished yet. Be obedient to Christ today. Be distinguished. It's that identifying mark where you join together in public with the assembly of the saints. And you openly say this, I am now a new creation in Christ. Hold me to that. I am identifying with Christ. Make sure that I look like that and I live like that. It's a distinguishing mark. Distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever, the pagan from the Christian, the world from the church, the sinner from the saint. It is baptism that distinguishes us. It identifies us as being cleansed. Not by the water of baptism, as Carrie Underwood in error sang about, Baptismal regeneration is a heresy. It has been for hundreds upon hundreds of years. It's not the water that cleanses you. Go read the rest of Scripture. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you. It is the water that symbolizes that cleansing. Where would we be without the blood of Jesus? That baptism identifies that we have been cleansed through the washing of the water, through the Word, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through faith and acceptance of the truth of the gospel. Acts 2.38, a verse that's many times taken out of context and become the topic of much controversy even in the church, which it shouldn't be. It's beautifully laid out. It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. I love the order of that, repent. Repent is that turning from sin and self and turning to Christ. He says, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, these people who jump into this baptizing Jesus Christ name. They don't understand unity among the Trinity. They say, see there, it says Jesus Christ. Well, see there, Matthew 28 says, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's going on here? When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. When the Father speaks, Jesus speaks. When the Spirit speaks, they all three speak as one. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, be, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've heard people many times take this and say, see, You're baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Yeah, and what you reveal there is that you don't really understand the original language, and you don't really even understand English. 
What he's saying here is this. Pay attention very closely. He says, be baptized every one of you. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if we were to take that and we were to say, okay, for the forgiveness of sins. I have to be baptized so that I can be forgiven. There are many people in Scripture who are in deep, deep trouble, aren't they? Yes. Thief on the cross being one of them. And I know, uh, well, that's an exception. There are no exceptions. God doesn't make exceptions. There's a hole in your theology there. No, here's what happens here. He's saying this, if you will pay close attention. He's saying be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. Remember what happened first, repentance and faith. And in faith and repentance, you're forgiven of all your sin. And because of that, be baptized now because you have been forgiven. Show the world, show the church publicly that you've been washed through the blood of Jesus Christ, that you are forgiven. We are baptized because of the forgiveness of sin. You say, well, why would they use four? Well, think about this for a moment. I'm married to Brandy. I'm married to Brandy for I love her. Oh, you would think there was nothing wrong with that if I didn't use the word because. You would understand very quickly that the reason that I devoted myself to her was because I love her. For I love her. Be baptized for because of the forgiveness of sin. Now, when we interpret it correctly, then everything else in all of Scripture lines up. It is now grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and not works that we do or that others do for us. So we see that baptism is very important to making disciples. Why? It's their first act of obedience. The true church will point those who have been saved to identify with Christ publicly. Why? So that the invisible becomes visible, so that all will see. In just a moment, some are going to be baptized. What they are saying is this, and this has been explained to them. They're saying, I'm a new creation in Christ. Church, I'm publicly professing Christ, as many of you have. And I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to lift me up in prayer. I need you to be my family and my support on this earth as we walk through darkness together, shining the light of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. It's important that in making disciples, we point people to baptism. And then he goes on and he says this, verse 20. He says, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He tells his disciples, if you're going to make disciples, you've got to teach them. Right? And discipleship doesn't happen by proxy. Discipleship doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't just take your Bible and go lay your head on your Bible at night while you sleep, and it's going to be somehow transferred into your mind. No, if we're going to follow the Lord's assignment in making disciples, he includes teaching them. Teaching them. How do we teach them? Through scriptural exposition. Expository teaching strengthens and matures the church. It doesn't make carnal or worldly sense. I know that. It doesn't make sense how a man can get up here and take the scriptures and, and squeeze them for everything that they have in them. And that go out into your ears, into your mind, into your heart, and then be used by God to transform you. It is supernatural. It's God's intended way. Wasn't it Jesus himself in John 17, 17, who said, Lord, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. What is the truth of the word of God when it is taught, when it is preached? 
It is the truth of the Word of God that begins to set you apart from the world. It is that exposition of Scripture. That's why Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he said, do your best to present yourself good as one approved, presenting yourself to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the Word of truth. One who correctly handles the Word of truth. You don't just pull something out of context to preach whatever topical message you decide you want to preach that Sunday. No, what you do, you diligently study the Scriptures and you exposit those truths. You take Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, and you look at everything that's there for the believer and knowing what their assignment is, and that assignment is to make disciples. How do you do that? You teach. You teach. You teach the Scripture verse by verse, word by word, line by line. What a sad state the so-called church is in when this consumer-driven culture has exchanged the expositing of Scripture for entertaining the sinners in the so-called church. Oh, I don't want to go to that church because all they do, I've heard it, is teach the Bible. What do you expect them to do? Well, I want to know how this affects my life. And in that, you reveal your ignorance. The life of the believer will be affected tremendously through the exposition of the Word of God. When you see these truths and these truths come alive, and your mind is renewed through those truths, and you leave your humanistic, practical, worldly way of thinking, and you begin to exercise the mind of Christ to which you've been given. Oh, we need to, in the church... I'm thankful that we're a part of a church who's committed to the exposition of Scripture. Everything that we do in our Bible studies, men's studies, ladies' studies, the pulpit, the enriched Bible studies that are going on right now, your children, the ministries that they're in, you know what your children are not getting right now? Flashy lights and jumpy games. They're having the Scriptures taught to them in their proper context, in the proper way, as they are written, to whom they are written to, exactly what they mean according to the Word of God. And in that, you're making disciples. You're not making a bunch of people who just want to jump around for Jesus. A bunch of hype. You know what happens to those people? They grow up and they become adults and they go into a church where there's expository preaching and they say, well, it's kind of boring. I want to go back to that rock concert I used to go to when I was in youth group. Now, you know what our students are going to do here, 7th through 12th grade? There's going to be a teacher, a man who stands before them who exposits the word of truth week in and week out. Verse by verse by verse, teaching them what it means, how to apply it to their lives. Scriptural exposition is very important in teaching, but also sound doctrine and theology. I'll move quickly, I promise. Sound doctrine and theology. Titus 1.9, Paul tells Titus in his pastoral epistle, he says, He must hold, talking about the elder or the overseer, the bishop, he said he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by, watch this, sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he says this again to Titus. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, another pastoral epistle writing to young Timothy. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
This is for all those people who refuse to be interested in doctrine and theology. I just want Jesus. Why do we have to have doctrine and theology? You can't separate Jesus and theology. He is God. And the doctrines that surround Christ are truth. That's why they are called sound doctrines. And in the two pastoral epistles that I have mentioned here today, Titus and 1 Timothy, in both of those pastoral epistles, he encourages them to dedicate and devote themselves to sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound theology. Why is that important? Weak theology makes weak disciples. You want to be a weak disciple? Go to some place where they've watered it down. It's not even milk. It's water. Go there. They'll produce weakness if they produce anything at all. Learn sound doctrine. Be willing to endure sound doctrine and theology. Why? So that you can use it in making other disciples. I told you this is our assignment. Make disciples. And in order to make disciples, we have to exposit the Scripture and we have to be dedicated to sound doctrine and theology. Not only that, solid application. Teach others how to apply what they have learned. True biblical teaching always leads to holy living. You can write that down. True biblical teaching leads to holy living. Why? Because a good teacher is not only going to tell you what, they're going to tell you how. Here's how you do this. This is what Jesus is doing here in this text. Make disciples. Here's how you do it. Go. As you're going, share the gospel. Point them to follow the Lord in a public profession known as baptism. And then teach them everything I've commanded you. Continue to exposit the truth that I have given you. Show them those things. In that, you will make disciples. Solid application requires that we live in consistency with what we teach and what we preach. That's why New Testament is full of instruction and warnings to those who would teach, letting them understand that you are going to be held to a higher standard. It's important that you know that in teaching, you're held to a higher standard. You have to live a life that is above reproach, blameless. Why? Because you are actively showing others how you are to obediently live out the things that Scripture teaches. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He tells Timothy this, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers. Watch what he says. What area? In speech, what you say, how you say it. In life, where you go, what you do. In love, how you love others, in faith, how you trust God, and in purity, holiness. He tells Timothy, hey, devote your life to being an example of what you teach. Good doctrine and good theology, if it's really good doctrine and good theology, always results in holy living. Because you will see God more clearly, and you will see how holy He is, and you cannot then stand unholiness in your life. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, the Apostle Paul, and using the analogy of boxing, he says so that he doesn't abuse his freedom that he's been given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I beat my own body into subjection. I discipline myself to the point that I am obedient. Why? 
You know what his thinking was? So that I'm not disqualified. What did he mean by that? So that when others look at me, they don't see that I practice differently than what I preach. They don't look at me and say, man, what a quack. What a hoax. He says one thing, but he lives another thing. If you're going to be effective in disciple making, you have to give solid application. And you give solid application by living it, not just teaching or preaching it. In fact, parents, I want to give you a freebie this morning. Don't tell your children how to live if you're not willing to live that. Don't tell your children to live godly lives if you're not willing to live a godly life. You're going to confuse them. If you're going to make disciples, show them the application. Here's what I taught you, and here's how we apply it in life. Sit them down. Walk them through it. This is Deuteronomy 6, when God gave the commands to Moses. He told them to teach the people this, to impress them upon their children. That means to emboss them into their children. That comes with consistency. That comes with time. That comes with effort. It's you being constant in your walk with Christ. Not, not we walk for Christ, with Christ for a season and we jump back in the world. And then we get tired of the world and we walk for Christ for a moment, with Christ for a moment, and in the church, and then we jump back in the world again. There's no consistency there. You know what's going to happen to the next generation? They're not going to step into Christ at all. Why? Because you didn't tell them and teach them the truth by your life. True church will be constantly teaching those who have been saved. They'll be teaching them the full counsel of the Word of God, that not only are we to learn and to know these truths and these principles, but we are to apply them actively in our daily lives. Last thing. You say, last thing? I thought we were done. Yeah, this is the one that so many times we miss. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Watch what Jesus says next. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus teaching here? What is he showing us? He's showing us that in making disciples, we must trust and teach others to trust in the promises of God. Surely I am with you always. We must first trust and to teach others to trust in the promise and the presence of the Lord. Right? The Lord has just given them this big task. What did he say? Carry on what I've started. Did they have big shoes to fill? <laughs> you bet. And he's saying, carry on what I've started. As you're going, carry on what I've started. Remember when I was baptized? And there you witness my baptism, right? The Spirit descending like a dove, the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son, who I am well pleased, the three working in one accord. Wow, that's Trinitarian, isn't it? He said, baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, letting them know that we're still working in one accord. And then teach them everything that I have commanded you. Continue to exposit the truths from the Scriptures and teach them but also remind them to trust in my faithfulness. Jesus said, you have a big task ahead of you, a heavy task. But I'm not leaving you by yourself. I'm so thankful that in this life and what I do, what we do as believers in sharing the gospel, we are never alone. He says, I'm there with you. We must trust in that. We must teach others to trust in that, right? The, the new believer who struggles for the first time as a new believer, I don't know what's happening. I, I, was, I was saved and I was baptized. It seems like nothing's getting better. He's there with you. 
He's going to carry you through this. He's never going to leave you. He's never going to depart from you. He's never going to forsake you. He hasn't left you as an orphan. Trust, keep trusting. He has not ever, and he will not ever abandon any of his children. You want to make disciples? Teach people to trust in that. Trust in that, young believer, person who was just baptized last week. Trust in that. God is with you. When you go back to school, students, because I know some of you have just recently been baptized. Last week, we baptized many. When you go back to school and things are dark and things are difficult, remember this, trust in Christ. He's there with you. He's not abandoned you. He's walking the halls with you. Trust in the promise of his presence. How is he always present? Well, it's a mystery that we can't even hardly wrap our brain around, but he's present through the power of the Holy Spirit living in those of us who are truly believers. In fact, John chapter 14 when we were back in the Gospel of John, we learned this in verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command, Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. He's talking about the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, watch this, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you, all working as one there again. What is he saying? In the near picture for them, he's saying, I'm going to rise from the grave. But the bigger picture was this. He's going to indwell them through his Holy Spirit forever. He's going to live in the true believer. In fact, Romans tells us that. If you're in Christ, the Spirit lives in you. If the Spirit doesn't live in you, you're not in Christ. That's for all the people who want to try to say that the Holy Spirit's a second blessing. Well, if you got the Holy Spirit, let me just help you out. You got saved then. You received the Holy Spirit at salvation according to the Word of God. We need to remind people of the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that's when those of us who believe what we believe theologically, we kind of get weird and go, oh, if we talk about the Holy Spirit too much, people are going to think we're charismatic. <laughs> and don't dare call him the Holy Ghost because that's when things just get really weird. Scripture calls him both. We can't just forget about the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We have to teach young believers as we're making disciples to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells them. He is the promise, that counselor that Jesus gives in John 14, verse 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. He is that counselor and that teacher who lives and abides in us. Don't forsake the Holy Spirit just because you're afraid of being charismatic. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God, and you'll never be charismatic. You'll only be charismatic in the true sense of the Word, which means gifted. You operate in the gifts of the Spirit, bringing glory to God. The power of the Holy Spirit must be trusted. If you're going to make disciples, teach people to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they need to make more disciples. Don't they? Aren't you thankful that others have trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples throughout the ages? Right? Because Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, what did he say in verse 8? He said, but, it, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I am thankful that they were obedient to that. Because the apostles who have long been in the presence of God in heaven, they are still making disciples through their message because they were obedient to Christ. Oh, if the Lord did delay another 2,000 years, May the people of Keli Fellowship still be making disciples 2,000 years from now. How do we do that? Just as we've seen today. We go, we share the good news. 
We point others to obedience and identifying with Christ through public profession. We then teach them everything that the Lord has commanded, and then we continue to teach them by teaching them to trust, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who will give you the power to be my witness. I've heard it time and time again, that, that young believer who goes in an evangelism class to learn how to share their faith, that I just don't know if I can talk to people. And they go out on the streets, and it's like this person has now been a, totally possessed by the Apostle Paul. They're, they're shucking the corn and sharing the gospel, and people are turning their hearts and faith to Jesus Christ, and you're going, what got into them? The power of the Holy Spirit. We taught them to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to have the words to say, but he's going to give you the words to say. Open your mouth and watch. Because whatever you shake, when you open the lid, whatever's in there is coming out. When you open that lid, the gospel's going to come out. The truth of the scripture is going to come out, and people are going to be saved. Why? It's, it's God's design in making disciples. He didn't mess up. It's a perfect design. Trust in it. Trust in the Holy Spirit empowering you to do it. Not only that, when we look at the topic of trusting as part of making disciples, We've seen the promise and presence of the Lord. We must remind people of that, to trust in that, the power of the Holy Spirit, trust in that. But also the preordained plan of God. The preordained plan of God, where do you get that in this text? Pay attention to what Jesus says here. He goes on and he tells them this. He says that, I'm with you, always. And then he says this, to the very end of the age. What was he talking about? He's talking about the end of the church age. Did you know this? Contrary to popular belief, Jesus is coming back. And he's letting his followers know this, that as you are waiting for my return, as you are waiting for his return, you have an assignment. That assignment is to make disciples. And in making disciples, we must trust in the preordained plan of God to the very end of the age, that at one time, in the future, my prayer is this, in the near future, the consummation of all things surrounding the age of the church will end. And Christ will return for his bride. And what a glorious day that is going to be. We have to trust that. We have to teach others to trust that. That this time on earth as the church is just a moment in the large redemptive plan of God. But the whole time that you are here as the church in this world, suffering as you may, struggling as you may, facing trials as you may, you have this promise that God's plan is bigger than all this and that Christ is with you until he comes to rescue you and you are face to face with him for all eternity, wiping every tear from your eye, taking every sorrow away from you, eliminating death, once and for all. We must trust and teach others to trust in the preordained plan of God. That's part of making disciples. To teach them, trust God. Kirk, you don't understand I'm going through a difficult time. Keep trusting. It may be difficult, but you're not deserted. Oh, isn't that what the Apostle Paul said? We're perplexed, hard-pressed, beat down, but never forsaken. Oh, What promise? never forsaken. He's always there with us. And he will be with us in this entire age known as the age of the church. That is that span of time. We don't know what it is. 
So far, it's been roughly 2,000 years from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ, and we are in that in-between time. And what do we do in that in-between time? Right? When you turn on the news and everything's falling apart, rejoice. Why? Because Christ is with you, and he will always be with you, and he will return, and he will rescue you, just as he promised. We're going to make disciples point others to that. We don't even hear about the return of Christ being preached in the pulpits or taught in any classes anymore. We get to it, we all go, oh, let's just don't talk about this. It's kind of controversial. Is it really? Christ is coming back. I don't care what side of the eschatological calendar you lay on, where you land, Christ is coming back. True believers will all agree on that. At some point in time, he's coming back. Let's rejoice in the fact that when this age is over, Christ will return and point others to trust in that. You want to make disciples, give them hope beyond this life. Who is the hope beyond this life? Christ and his return. We're making disciples. We'll be teaching people to trust in that, the preordained plan of God, that he's already worked everything out in accordance with his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Oh, don't you grow when you hear those things? I close with this. This is a letter that I received. Don't even know who I received it from. Thankful for it. It sits on my desk every day to remind me to stay the course in teaching the Word of God and to making disciples. It says this, Dear Kurt, the Lord has put you very heavy on my heart the last few days. I'm not sure why, but I'm sure there are no coincidences. Me too. When it comes to the sovereign hand of God. Think that's a growing and maturing believer? You bet it is. There are no coincidences when it comes to the sovereign hand of God. I believe He has put you on my heart so I may provide some encouragement to you. I've contemplated not writing this note to you. So glad that the Spirit won. But if I know the good I ought to do and do not do it, it is sin for me. Think that's a growing, maturing believer? A disciple? Yeah, they understood. If I don't encourage you, the Spirit has prompted me to encourage you, I'm in sin. So I'd like to be obedient to the Lord and spurring you on as my pastor. Thank you so much. I've not the slightest clue the amount of pressure you are under week to week. I can only imagine the enemy's attempts at having a field day with you because of your faithfulness in declaring, thus saith the Lord, week in and week out. I will never in my life know the weight of standing behind the pulpit. But I thank you for bearing that weight for this flock. As one of your sheep, I want to thank you for sticking your neck out and saying what needs to be said. The pulpit should be the creator of anxious hearts. I know I'm saved, but I would be lying if I said I haven't left on a Sunday or many with a heavy heart, burdened to look more like Christ. You think this is a growing, maturing believer wanting to look more like Christ. The Word of God, you have been so bold in preaching, cuts to my very soul. Mine too. And I thank you for your faithfulness in that. I know you don't preach for the applause of men or the amen. But I thank you anyway for fearlessly preaching the Word of God. The Lord has definitely used you to grow me in my walk with Him. And I am thankful to God. He brought me to Key Life Fellowship. My soul now craves the deeper truths of Scripture. When all the church growth experts tell you that in order to make disciples, you've you got to get away from the Bible a little bit. Let, let, let it be a little more entertaining. Let it be more appealing to their flesh. Well, that's the world's tactics. This believer here is saying, no, because of the dedication to preaching the truth of the Word of God, I've grown deeper in my walk. I, I don't want milk alone like I once did. I know there's absolutely nothing good within Kirk Hall you're 100% right about that. But rather Christ in you. Yes, He is the only good in me. 
I can't help but be filled with a burning thankfulness to God and His goodness in using you for this king, His kingdom. I know it is far from easy or glamorous, but please do not grow weary. Keep your spiritual fervor. Keep preaching Christ and Him crucified. Keep calling sin out for what it is. Us sheep need good shepherds. Like you, to constantly point us to the good shepherd. You are in our prayers. Soli Deo Gloria. And then if you didn't think that this was a growing and maturing Christian, they then quote Spurgeon to prove it. They wrote at the bottom, never was a man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. C.H. Spurgeon. I don't say those things to highlight Kirk Hall because Kirk Hall is not worth highlighting as this person already notated. Thank you so much, whoever you are. I say those things because we are a church who is faithful in making disciples who get it. You say, well, Kirk, if you're a church who's faithful in making disciples who get it, why are you preaching us this message? So that we don't forget. So that we don't forget. We as humans are prone to forget what brought us to where we are so quickly. May we be ever diligent see the assignment that Christ has given us. And may we forever go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us while we trust that He will never leave us and never forsake us until He returns to rescue us. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word. Because it is truth. God, I pray for the soul who's here today who is not a disciple of Christ. They have never surrendered their life to Christ. I pray today that they heard the gospel as it was proclaimed in this message that, Lord, you would draw them to receive Christ as Lord and Savior today, saving them and washing them and cleansing them. And God, I pray for each believer here today that they would examine their life in light of this. They would simply ask that question, am I... Obeying the assignment, the biblical assignment that Christ has left for the members of His church to accomplish. Am I making disciples? Lord, I pray that You convict hearts. I pray that You break and that You mold and that You humble. Because I know in that, the balm of Gilead, Christ, will then be applied into their lives, that You will heal them, that You will raise them up, strong disciple makers for Your glory. And that the next generation will hear about Christ and will receive the gospel and the teachings that you taught. As your word is proclaimed, as your Holy Spirit is trusted, and your will be done. We give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281 281- 689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.